welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. foremost, I just wanted to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers. If you're a dad, stand up. Give it up for... Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Happy Father's Day. Have a rum and coke on me today. Just don't send me the bill. Just tell them Jesus paid the price. <laughs> You smoke a cigar, do whatever you do. It is your day. Amen. Well, I'm excited because we're going to hit the book of Mark and, and crack open a brand new series called An Unwelcome Humanity. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. That is a beautiful painting, isn't it? Picture. Look at that. Where's Heidi Ambrose? Is she here? No, Heidi's not here today. Man, that I can't think of a series of, of uh, image that captures where we're going with Mark than this. So, great job, Heidi. All right. So we're in Mark, and I'm going to w- walk us through this passage. Uh, this morning, and kind of open it up, and then I'm excited. We've got. Brother Mike, Brother Hakeem, Michelle Jones, Chelsea Gerlach, and others that are going to be helping with this series. So I'm excited to hear all these different voices this summer. So we're going to tackle today the book of Mark. And just to give you a little bit of a background, book of Mark was written during Neronian, Nero's persecution between 54 and 68 A.D., And the interesting thing coming from the book of Romans now into the book of Mark is the audience is pretty much the same. It's mostly Jews and Gentiles, this very mixed group. And they're facing a lot of persecution. If you remember, I said in the book of Rome, when Nero was in power, the city was set on fire. Some believe he did it and then blamed Christians. And as a result, they took the the bulk of the blame and therefore were persecuted because Nero hated Christians. It's during this particular time that this book is written. Now, the interesting thing is, is that it's a book about suffering, a book about persecution. And Mark is this Jewish disciple of Jesus who, who pens this book. And, and what makes it different than all the other gospels is that it's condensed. It's much smaller. It's like the cliff notes of the other Gospels. But the, but the cool thing is, is that it is organized um, around the full mission of Jesus and what he came to do. So it's packed. It's short. It's concise uh, from start to finish. Uh, and it's a very simple book. So as we dive into it, Actually, all you have to do is look at chapter 1, verse 1, to really get a fuller picture of what the book of Mark's about. He says here in verse 1, he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So 
Good news means gospel. And so one thing that we know about the book of Mark is how it starts. Matthew, the book of Matthew starts with Jesus' genealogy. In Luke, uh, Luke starts with the birth of Jesus, and then John starts with creation. Now, what makes Mark's book so interesting is that it starts with Jesus, the good news of the gospel. Now, for some of you, that might not mean anything because that sounds like just religious language, just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. But gospel is not, the word gospel wasn't a religious term back then. It was a political term. Sort of like when, you know, Constantine defeated Maximinus at the Melvian Bridge, the gospel went out. It was a way of declaring good news. It was a way of heralding somebody. It was a way of determining who was God and who was savior of the world. And so when Caesar defeated Milvian, um, I'm sorry, when, uh, when Caesar defeated, uh, who did he defeat? Octavian in a civil war, it was proclaimed, it was gospeled out that he was not only king of the Roman Empire, but he was the Lord, master, and savior of the Roman Empire. So when Mark starts off his book, notice what he does. He makes an announcement. And it's not just a religious announcement. It's a political announcement, which was Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. The Greek word for gospel or good news is oulangelion. That's what it means in the Greek. It means highly favored. It means uh, God or savior or rescuer. It was a term of endearment. And what Mark is doing right out of the gate is showing how the gospel, number one, is subversive because it's willing to stand in Neronian persecution and say, no, you are not Lord, you are not master, you are not savior, Jesus is. So it's subversive. And the second thing is, is that the gospel was not safe. And for us, we don't understand that in America. Because we like our, our liberties and our freedoms and our country and our guns and our all. You see what I'm saying? We like our safety and we think Jesus died to make us comfortable. And the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel is subversive and it's not safe. And it causes us into spaces that are highly uncomfortable for us. And Mark starts off with the gospel saying, in the beginning, this oulangelion is dangerous. It's subversive. It's not safe. And this is what he calls you into. And we're going to see throughout the book of Mark how unsafe the gospel is by welcoming the kind of people Jesus welcomes. Do you hear me this morning? Now, Actually, I could stay in verse 1 all day long, literally, because there are three storylines in verse 1 that all converge by the end of the book, and we'll get there down at the end of the book, but I'll give you sort of the foundations, right, of the three things. Think here, if you're taking notes, there's three things, three storylines that converge. The first one is Eden, like the Garden of Eden. That's the first storyline. The second storyline is Israel. Write that down. And the, that's the second storyline is Israel. And then the third storyline is Rome, empire. Those are the three storylines here in the book. 
right? The first one is Eden, the second one is Israel, and the third one is empire, Rome. Now, let's unpack those real quick here. Let me get my notes together. All right, let's unpack those. All right, the first one is Eden. Notice how Mark starts the book. In some translation, it says, in the beginning. In the NIV, it says, the beginning. But how does the Bible start in Genesis? In the, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So what is Mark saying here? He is saying that whatever this story that I'm writing is about, it includes creation. Notice here this language, and you see all this imagery of the Old Testament is sort of creation and, and exodus. You'll see it throughout the whole book of Mark. But look with me in verse 10 and 11. It says, Jesus at his baptism says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw heaven's opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Verse 11, and a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Now I've done a lot of water baptisms, tons. The sky ain't never cracked open for anyone I've ever baptized, including myself. Much less a voice coming out of the sky saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Can you just admit that sometimes the Bible's weird? Right? It's strange. You got all this kind of crazy language here, and this is exactly what's happening. Now, you got to remember, Mark was Jewish, and he's writing Greek to a Roman audience, even though he is Jewish. So that means the first language is Aramaic. Hebrew was no longer spoken in his day, so to read Hebrew there was a Hebrew translation back then called the Targum. And it's interesting, when it gets into the Targum about Mark chapter 1, Mark actually quotes Genesis chapter 1, referencing these two verses, and it says it this way, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uninhabitable, and a wasteland, and the Spirit of God flapped his wings over the water like a dove. This is Mark's way of saying this baptism is way more than Jesus' baptism. This is about creation. Now, if you go into verse 12 and 13 to double down on this, it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. This is Jesus, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and angels were ministering to him. Now think about this. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted. Where do we see this in the book of Genesis during the story of creation? Adam and Eve, not in a desert or a wilderness, but in a garden, and they're tempted. And what do they do with the temptation? They give in to the temptation, and guess what? Everybody sins in Adam, and our whole world is corrupt. What does Jesus do? He goes not into a garden, he goes into the desert, and he's tempted, but he doesn't succumb to the temptation to tell us something about creation. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created everything. Then in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve made a poor decision and decreated God's creation. And now what we see here in the life of Jesus, in the wilderness, is Jesus recreating what Adam and Eve decreated. Do you hear me this morning? So Mark is saying, 
in the beginning, I'm getting ready to tell you a story about creation. And you guys all know, I know we all don't agree politically. I know some of you squirmed when I got up and talked about immigration. We don't culturally and ethnically and politically and religiously, we don't always agree. That's fine. That's the body of Christ. But we still are able to hang out at the table together, still do coffee in the morning together, because that's what Jesus has called us into. But there's one thing we can all agree on, and that is, is that our world is broken. It is not humming. The algorithm of our heart is not wired the way God designed it originally to be wired. <laughs> and so God, through Jesus, written by the book of Mark, makes this announcement that I am here to recreate what you have decreated to usher in a new humanity and a new world. And it starts right now in this Ulangelion, this good news of Jesus. There's a new Eden in Christ. And that is the liberty and freedom we have. So that's the first storyline. The second storyline is what? Israel. Look with me. Verse 1, go back. There we go. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. and some, it says Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. In case you didn't know that, all right? Christ is just a way of saying who Jesus was, right? Christ means the anointed one or the awaited, awaited one or the Messiah. Now, Israel, you got to understand something. Israel was on pins and needles waiting for a messianic hope to come and emancipate them because they were, they were under occupation. They were being oppressed. In fact, Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, said this about Israel. He said it was a kind of atmosphere that characterized the life of the Jewish community when Jesus was a youth in Palestine. The urgent question was what must be the attitude toward Rome. Was any attitude possible that would be morally tolerable and at the same time preserve a basic self-esteem without which life could not possibly have any meaning? The question is not academic. It was the most crucial of questions. In essence, Rome was the enemy. Rome symbolized total frustration. Rome was the great barrier to peace of mind. And Rome was everywhere. No Jewish person of the period could deal with the question of his practical life, his vocation, his place in society, until first he had settled within him or herself the critical issue. What is our relationship to Rome? Israel was waiting for a king, a savior, a hope. They were on, like I said, pins and needles. And here's the good news of the gospel. Is that what we see here in verse 2 and 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Here's what Mark is saying. He quotes Malachi and he quotes Isaiah and he says, Jesus is your long-awaited Savior. 
John the Baptist preparing the way for your messianic hope. The long-awaited, soon-coming king is here. That's the second storyline. The third storyline is Rome. Now look with me back at verse 1. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I keep, you got to understand, these words like gospel and son of God was not, like I said, religious mumbo jumbo. It's not churchy lingo. The son of God was a designated phrase used for Caesar. Long before Mark declared Jesus is the son of God, Caesar did so and he doubled down by claiming his divinity. In fact, when you look at this picture, which is a coin, these were the coins. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew, said, render to what Caesar and to what God is God. These are the kind of coins they use on the front end, bearing the image of Augustus, right? Caesar was his picture on the back. That literal phrase says son of God. And so literally anyone that was in power, that was an emperor, that had any kind of authority all the way up at the top, that were tyrannical, had this self-aggrandizing ego that coronated one as king, as lord, as master. That's the way we saw government, country, people in authority, right? That was their religion, their politic. So you can imagine how dangerous this was for Mark to say, Jesus, not Caesar, is the son of God. We don't get it. We're in America, right? We're not under an oppressive regime, right? We can preach the gospel and not worry about being persecuted, per se. Don't you understand that Mark is saying that this gospel is a dangerous gospel? All right. How are we doing on time? Okay, so now I got to get through all the other verses. <laughs> I told you I could just stay here, right? That's how heavy it is. But for sake, I got to get you through chapter one, and I think I can. So how does this, how does this gospel break in? Well, we see how it starts. It starts with an announcement. That's what Mark does here in verse one. Right? Saying, empire is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. But the other piece I want you to see is where it starts. Read with me verses 4 through 8 real quick. Look at where it starts. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Say wilderness. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem... They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Look at this picture. I want you to kind of see, kind of see how this whole thing is being situated. All right? John the Baptist is at the Jordan River. People of Judea are hearing this Ulangelion, the gospel being proclaimed. It's a gospel of repentance. They leave Judea and they go to the Jordan River. Now, at first glance, that may not mean anything. But you got to remember, the center of religious power was in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem was situated in Judea. If you needed a prophetic word, if you needed to hear God's voice, if you needed the scriptures interpreted, if you needed religious authority, you got it at the temple. Now, the interesting thing is, people are not finding God's presence, God's power, God's goodness, God's freedom at the church, at the temple. They're going to the desert. Can I tell you right now, I have found probably over the last 10 years asking myself the question, what does Christianity mean for me now? What does it mean to love Jesus? Oftentimes I find myself believing that the institution like Jerusalem, same like the institution, religious institutions here in America are not providing salient gospel filled answers. And so people are asking, people are fleeing to the wilderness, finding God in other places at coffee shops, right? They're finding God in other spaces, but, but the church. They're asking themselves, what does it mean to be a Protestant? What does it mean to be an evangelical? I like this, but I'm not with this. I believe in this, but I can't get with this. How do you move into spaces in, in, in our country and live out your faith in a way that's nuanced? And I'm telling you right now, I believe there's a desert theology. There's a bottom-up theology. Jesus is not just showing up in churches. He's showing up everywhere. The kingdom of God breaks in. Do you have a heart and ears to hear what the, the Spirit of the Lord is saying? I love the church and I love the gather, gathering of the saints. I love worshiping. I love seeing your face. I enjoy preaching to you. But can I tell you, the kingdom of God does not break in here. It breaks in out there. I have a buddy of mine who's at another church here in the city. And he moved to Park Rose. And then he pulled his kids out of Christian school and he put them in public school. Park Rose. And his kids play soccer and basketball. So naturally, they play on the soccer and basketball team. And so he and his wife decided just to start, you know, obviously supporting their kids coming to the games. They started noticing that the kids didn't have proper equipment. And before their games, they weren't even eating, right, like a pregame meal. And so they decided, you know what, we're going to raise money. We're going to get them equipment. We're going to make sure that they have pregame meals. And so they're... Kids started bringing these kids that don't know Jesus to their house. So then they end up turning this time of their children bringing other Park Row students to their house into a Bible study where they would have a Sunday night dinner, feed them, and then share Jesus with them. Right now, they have about 30 kids that come to it. About a month ago, 19 of those 30 kids, he had an altar call in his living room. 19 of those 30 kids gave their life to Jesus. And you know what? He's not even a youth pastor. He, he owns his own real estate company. 
So he said, man, he called me up and he goes, man, I got all these kids. And I don't know what to do. And I gave an altar call and 19 gave their life to Jesus. And I'm wondering, should I call my church and see if they would be willing to bring me on full time? Because it's hard to balance. It's hard to balance my real estate stuff and disciple these kids. And I said, the moment you go full time at the church is the moment you destroy what God's doing right there in your living room. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And my friend, you might just have the most dynamic youth ministry in the city. That's what it means to live missionally. That's what it means to have perceptive eyes. Listen, God doesn't break in so much through traditional ministries that we come to get involved in at a local church on an institutional level. The kingdom of God breaks in out there in the desert. That's why I enjoy working with Hala because that is desert ministry. Some of you work with refugees and don't get a lick of credit here. Don't get any kind of official statement about who you are in relationship to the church. And don't you understand, that's where the kingdom of God is always breaking in. That's where people are getting fed. How many of you are willing to live out there in the desert? It starts in isolation. It starts, the desert represents abandonment. It's in those places that God forms your voice. I grew up in L.A., born and raised in Inglewood. Love me some L.A. My buddies in L.A. are like, back when I first moved up here, they was like, all they knew about Oregon was Bigfoot. They wanted to know, have you seen Bigfoot, any Bigfoot sightings? That's about, they just thought Oregon was a bunch of trees. Is this city smaller than I like? Yes. Is it as less diverse than I like? Absolutely. Is it a challenge to who I am ethnically as a black man? No doubt. But to a certain extent, Oregon has been my desert. And it has been in Corvallis. And then coming up here, working in predominantly white evangelical Protestant churches that God has helped me find my voice. And it's been here that the kingdom of God has not only showed up in the places God has placed me, but it's where the kingdom of God has shown up in my heart to make me think different because a different humanity is pushed against it. So the kingdom of God, right? The gospel starts with Jesus. Where it started is in the desert. <laughs> but the last thing that I want to hit is whom it starts with. Look with me. I, if you read Mark, you're going to notice some geography here that you hear a lot. And I believe that geography has theology. So pay attention to the geography because I'm going to theologize the geography. <laughs> Look with me in verse 1. It says, at the time that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So where is he baptized? In the Jordan. But where does he come out of? Galilee. And then John gets put into prison in verse 14. And it says, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God right so then Jesus is out there identifying and calling out his disciples 
Simon and Andrew being two of them. And it says in verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So we're starting to hear this theme of Galilee. Like, you know, they're either leaving Galilee or coming to Galilee or calling people out of Galilee. But Galilee is this important piece to Mark's theology and Jesus' mission. Verses 21 through 28, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How do you come to destroy us? How come you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus sternly says. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of what? Galilee. Here we go again. Verses 35 through 39. Look at this. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout where? Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. So think about this for a second. He leaves Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized in the Jordan, verse 9. After John is put into prison, Jesus goes to Galilee to proclaim the gospel. Verse 16, Jesus calls some of his original disciples, Simon and Andrew, from Galilee. Then Jesus goes to the synagogue, he casts somebody out, casts a demon out of some man, Right? And then the news spreads about him throughout all of Galilee. Now, why is Galilee so important to Mark's story? And why is this so important to Jesus's mission? Well, R.T. France, in his commentary, The Gospel of Matthew, says this about Galilee. Number one. Racially, the area, Galilee racially was the area of the former northern kingdom of Israel had. And ever since the Assyrian conquest in the 8th century BC, a more mixed population within which more conservative Jewish areas like Nazareth and Capernaum stood in close proximity to the large pagan cities of which in the first century the new Hellenistic centers of Tiberias and Sephora were the chief examples. So basically, to put it in a nutshell... Galilee was the most ethnically and racially diverse part of, of the empire. <laughs> then, R.T. Francis says, not only racially, but geographically, Galilee was separated from others by the non-Jewish territory of Samaria and from Perea in the southeast by the Hellenistic settlements of the Decapolis. So it was a separated part of the city. I mean, separate part of the country. Culturally, he says, Judeans despised the northern neighbors as a country 
cousins, their lack of Jewish sophistication being compounded by their greater openness to the Hellenistic influence. So they were <laughs> despised because they weren't of high culture. They were a low culture. And then it says, linguistically, Galileans spoke a distinctive form of Aramaic whose slovenly consonants were the butt of everybody's jokes. And then religiously, he says, the Judean opinion was that the Galileans were lax in their observances of the proper ritual and the problem was exacerbated by the distance of Galilee from the temple and the theological leadership with which it focused on in Jerusalem. And yet, what does Mark go completely in on? And where is Jesus' mission announced from? Galilee. The most underrepresented, ethnically, racially diverse area of the Middle Eastern world. And this is where the gospel is announced. So we know where the gospel starts. Started with Jesus. We know geographically where it was announced. It was announced in the desert of Galilee. But this is the last little point that I want you to see because this is where I really feel God has called the church to be. Look with me in verses 40 through 45. And this gets to the heart of our series over the next couple of months, an unwelcome humanity. And this is what the church is called to be, to join the mission of Jesus and be about this. Look with me. Verse 40. A leper came to Jesus. A leper came to Jesus. A first century historian, Josephus, wrote, lepers were treated as if they were the living dead men amongst corpses. One rabbi once said, upwind, a leper can come within six feet of a person, downwind, 150 feet. You couldn't talk about a more marginalized group of people than lepers. And yet, a leper comes to Jesus. The most socially outcast, marginalized, maligned person in the empire feels comfortable enough to come to Jesus. My question for you is, you know you're getting the gospel not by those that come to you that look like you, talk like you, act like you, think like you, dress like you, walk like you, and live in the same areas and neighborhoods that you do. This is how you get the gospel. When somebody that is extremely opposite from you absolutely feels comfortable to make a beeline to you because there is something different about you. That's when the gospel is screwed down at the very center of your heart. This leper comes to Jesus. Notice 
as we continue on in verse 40. It says, Then a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Here's the interesting thing about this poor and dispossessed leper is that he had the audacity to believe that Jesus could heal him. This is the beauty of diversity because oftentimes when you get in marginalized minority cultures, oftentimes what you see is a faith that's vibrant to believe God for incredible things. If you ever heard the saying, you don't know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. In poor, marginalized communities where people, all they got is Jesus, you see a vibrancy there. A power there. To believe God for some of the most ridiculous things. I know not y'all, but for some of us, we all sophisticated, know our Bibles, and been to seminary, and in Bible studies, and been in church a long time. We don't need to believe God for anything because, right, we, we know where our sustenance comes tomorrow, next week, and months down the road. But for some people, they got to believe Jesus day to day, hour by hour, second by second. In fact, nanoseconds by nanoseconds. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is what does Jesus do? Verse 41, it says, move with compassion, Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches him. Move with compassion, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. Now, if you read the Gospels, one thing you will notice is that Jesus heals a lot of people and not everybody believes. It was not a prerequisite for Jesus to bless and heal and do his works of miracles. Uh, it was not an expectation that they had to believe. In fact, we even see in Mark chapter 1 when he went into the setting, God, he cast a demon out of somebody without their permission. <laughs> That's who Jesus is. Nowhere here, you're getting ready to see this man is getting ready to be healed and made whole. And it wasn't based on his faith or his belief. There was nothing about his faith or belief so much that moved Jesus. What moved Jesus was what? It says move with compassion. That's what moved Jesus, not the fact that he believed. Before he healed them, he was broken up about him not being healed. Think about Lazarus, right? Jesus had all the power and he demonstrated by bringing Lazarus out of the grave. But when the story about Lazarus, the fact that he was dead, was told to Jesus, what did Jesus do first? He wept. Don't you understand when people come to you with broken hearts and things that are messed up in their life? There's a kid on my team. I'll never forget it. Um, a year ago, around this time, she didn't know who her dad was. And then the, the secretary called me and said, you got an eighth grader coming in. You need to meet her. So I went to the gym, met her. We got to talking for a while because she said she just lost her mom. 
And she's down at the gym just working out, just, you know, trying to sort through some things. He says, could you go down there and introduce yourself? I went down and introduced myself to her. Sweetest kid. And I'll never forget walking outside the gym, getting inside my car, banging my fist on the steering wheel, and saying to God, really? Is this what we're doing, God? The girl ain't got her dad, and now she just loses her mom. Is this what we're doing? Long before Jesus decides to do something with your pain, the first thing you need to understand is Jesus weeps over it. We're so good, quick to explain pain and suffering with God works things together for all, you know, weep. <laughs> this immigration issue, I don't care where you land on it. You might advocate, you might protest, you might resist, you might pray, you might. But the thing I want the church to be is a place that first hears this. Families being ripped, kids being ripped from their family. And the first thing we need to do is show compassion, weep. But the church doesn't show any compassion anymore because we have been smitten with leprosy. And so we no longer weep. I was at Starbucks this morning drinking coffee, going through my notes, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit said this as I was meditating on this passage. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to us, the church, all of us, can you weep over your country? Can you weep over, the, over your country's wrong interpretation of Romans 13? Can you weep that thousands of families are being torn apart in real time? Can you weep that this is even an argument within the body of Christ? Can we weep that all of us, excuse me, all of us are complicit and compromised around this issue? Today, the church is suffering from leprosy. And it's touched all of us. And today, God calls us to weep. So what must we do? We do? Well, here's a quick biblical answer in the scriptures. Look with me. Verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Verse 43, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as the testimony to them. And what does he do? He don't listen. He hard-headed. He completely messes up Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 45. But he... But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around it to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city. 
but stayed out in an unpopulated area and they were coming to him from everywhere. Now here's what we can do. Jesus was preaching in the city. He heals a leper who came from this unpopulated area to the city because he knew Jesus could transform his life. He then tells them, go show yourself to the priest because that way they could verify that he was the messianic hope. But what does the guy do? He does the exact opposite of what Jesus tells him to do. He is not being a good disciple. And he goes out and begins to proclaim. And I can't help blame him. If you had leprosy and you got healed, you might lose your mind too. <laughs> he out there acting up, showing out. He loses his mind. So much so that Jesus can't do any more work in the city. So where does he go? To the same unpopulated area that the man who had been stricken with le leprosy was. And it's there that everyone from the city comes to this unpopulated, deserted place. Here's the gospel and their lives are being transformed. What does that tell me? They exchange places. I've seen this phenomenon in church planning, the church planning world. Everybody wants to plant a church in the city. <laughs> Everybody want to go where it's popular, cool, and hip, and dope, and fly, and minister to the creatives with the slick websites. And the cool coffee bars and the hip pastor. Everybody wants to be in the city. And yet most of Jesus' miracles happened away from the city in unpopulated areas. Amongst the broken, the disenfranchised, amongst an unwelcome humanity like this leper. You believe in this ungelion, this gospel that Mark is proclaiming? It's calling you away from the city, not to it. It's calling you to the desert. It's calling you to people different than yourselves. And we're going to see this, all of these things, Eden, Israel, and Rome, all, all collide into this beautiful, beautiful story of Jesus calling us to be in spaces where we're not only ministering to an unwelcome humanity, but realizing that we are to others an unwelcome humanity. And that is the space that he's calling each and every one of us to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Today we come to the communion table to celebrate you, to eat of the elements, the bread, the drink from the cup. Because you welcomed us in. You died to recreate a new earth and a new family. The people of God that are living subversively and unsafe that are arranging relationships differently.
because of your body broken and your bloodshed. And today, as we come to the communion table, I pray that you would do a work in our heart. Help us to see how we've unwelcomed others. Help us to see how we've lived these safe, silo lives around people that keep us comfortable. And yet you call us to be different. You call us into the desert. The kingdom of God is rich and it's fertile and it's like this, that, and the other. It can only be described. It can't be defined. God, let the spirit of creativity happen in this room today. May we think different. May, we, may the church recapture a gospel imagination to see the earth filled with your glory. Call us into spaces that seem like plain Jane to the naked eye and it's there that you are there at work and you invite us to be a part of it so today god as we come to the communion table and as we eat the bread and we drink the, from the cup today god ignite our hearts to not be cool with status quo mundane stationary sedentary christianity that causes us into complacency and listlessness i pray all this in jesus name amen We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.